As you're taking your Bibles, if you would, please take a copy of, uh, as you're taking your seats, please take your Bibles, that's what I meant to say. Um, Please take your Bibles and flip to Isaiah chapter 12, Isaiah chapter 12, one of our shorter readings, uh, if you've been with us through Isaiah. When we started Isaiah, I said we'd be going through it until we finish or until God tells me to do something different. Well, God hasn't said that yet, so we're going to keep going. Uh, Short break next week, then back at it, but uh, praise the Lord, we finish one section once we complete this sermon. Say more about that. Uh, structure and whatnot in my introduction. Without further ado, let's hear God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the peoples, proclaim that His name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, for He has done gloriously. Let this be be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel." Thus ends the reading of God's word. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's ask his blessing as we consider his word. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words to us, which are life and light. We pray they would be that now. We pray that you would speak to us, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Though the sorrow may last for the night, his joy comes with the morning. Those are the words of Psalm 30, the words of a well-known song. They might have been the next words out of Isaiah's mouth if he had kept writing a bit more. See, Isaiah 12 wraps up the first section of Isaiah, chapters 1 through 12, as well as a little subsection of chapters 6 through 12. If you broke it down, chapters 1 through 6 have been called Diagnosis and Prognosis. In other words, to borrow from Isaiah, Woe is me, for I dwell among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Holy One of Israel. And then chapters 6 through 12, you might call them the triumph of grace. It's also been called the book of Emmanuel, because you see him so often. But the triumph of grace, that triumph may not be apparent at times. The last few weeks, you may not have seen it, but by chapter 12, You see it. You see hope. And therefore, you see joy. Admittedly, the first 12 chapters are full of judgment prophecies. And as Isaiah delivered many of them, there were probably armies encamped upon their borders. In some case, laying siege to their cities, having conquered other neighboring cities already. But along the way, Isaiah assured the faithful remnant the ones who remain of God's people after the world has tempted the others to fall away, he assured the remnant that God would send them salvation. And then in this chapter, you see a clear picture of that. Of course, when will it be? When will that day be? Both from their perspective nearly 3,000 years ago, from our perspective today. Now, regardless of when, what you see 
As Isaiah tells us that God's salvation, it leads to personal praise, deep joy, and a tongue that wants to tell. Our first point this morning is this, the song of salvation. You see it in the first two verses. You might say it's a personal praise song. Verse 1 says, you will say in that day. Now stop there. In that day. What day are we talking about? Helps if we've been reading along so far. Isaiah has used this phrase several times. After all, he's a prophet. Part of a prophet's ministry was to foretell, to tell forth the word of God, especially when God's people have gone astray. Another part was to foretell. That's that whole telling the future thing in, in as specific of terms as God wants you to. Sometimes there's an intentional vagueness there. But sometimes in that day, that phrase points to judgment of God's people when they've done wrong, when God is going to send a foreign nation to judge them. But sometimes it points to good news, either judgment on God's enemies or good news of another kind, like the final triumphant return of the king that Israel needed most. Now what king, what kind of king did Israel need? Isaiah's already told them. He said they needed a child, born of a virgin, known as Emmanuel, God with us, back in Isaiah 7. They needed as well a wonderful counselor, a mighty God whose government would never end, Isaiah 9. They needed somebody to deliver them from God's anger, which had still not turned away at that point because they were still rebelling against him instead of repenting and turning to God. They needed the shoot from the stump of Jesse, that's David's father, who would establish a worldwide kingdom. Saw that last week. That's what they needed. And Isaiah 11 says all that is going to happen in that day when God brings about a second exodus. And so in that day in in today's passage, in Isaiah 12, seems to be pointing to the same day. Again, let's read verse 1. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. The word turned, your anger turned away, and the word for comfort, you might comfort me, They can both be translated repent or turn, as well as some other things, in different contexts. It seems like this is a play on words. I don't know the right term for it, but it's almost like Isaiah is saying, because your anger turned, O God, my circumstances have turned. I'm no longer an object of anger, but now an object of comfort. That's why Isaiah and others are are singing. That's why you will say or sing in that day, In the day when Jesus establishes his forever worldwide kingdom, when the earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, then you will say, you will sing. Interestingly, verse 1, you, is singular. So are most of the verbs, nouns, pronouns around it. Not so later on in the passage. Isaiah seems to be saying, God will bring about this worldwide kingdom, But only you who have taken refuge in him will experience it. You see, not every Israelite saw the promised land. Some died in the wilderness. Not every church member in America or in any country will see the pearly gates of heaven. But if you, singular, can say this, then you will. Again, 
you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Think about what Isaiah is saying, what he's assuming in these statements. He's assuming that there is a God in heaven who created all the earth, who has the right to dictate terms, laws, to his creatures. And he does this for our good, so that we function the way we're supposed to. For example, when the manufacturer's instructions for something say, regular unleaded gasoline only, do not use diesel, it's for your good. They're not trying to limit you or restrict you unnecessarily, are they? Isaiah also assumes, he assumes God can dictate terms and that when we break those terms, we are the objects of his holy, righteous anger. There are some things that we should be angry about in life, aren't there? Violence against the helpless, the defenseless. Don't you get angry about that? Shouldn't you? Isaiah assumes that God has a right to be angry when we rebel against his terms and that the thing we need most is for that anger to be removed and that when his anger turns away, we will experience deep comfort, deep joy, that we will want to sing about it, that our, our lives will result in personal praise. Now is that too individualistic. After all, Israel was facing judgment during this time, a whole nation, partly because of one man's failure. I mean, King Ahaz, the, the scaredy cat who wouldn't trust God, who tried to bribe Assyria to rescue him, only to see Assyria turn on them in time. All that's in Isaiah 7 and elsewhere. One man's failure led to judgment for the nation. Of course, that statement is a bit too simplistic. Yes, Ahaz was unfaithful, but so was most of Israel. If you don't believe me, look at Isaiah 1 through 5, if you can stomach it. At the same time, God is saying here, the salvation that really counts, not just temporal deliverance from whatever problem you might be facing, but the one that really counts, the final golden ticket to the city whose streets are paved with gold, that depends on your choice. Oh yes, you can only make that choice if God first enables you and saves you. We love because He first loved us, 1 John 4.19. But at some point, your song of salvation, it depends upon this confession. You were angry with me, O oh God, and you had a right to be. But your anger turned away that you might comfort me. When you say that, you can also... Say this, verse 2, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. He has become my salvation. His anger turned away. He saved me from His own anger by sending His own Son to absorb the anger that I deserved. You might remember last week's passage. It had, it had lots of second exodus imagery. The idea that Christ's second coming, it will be like a second and greater exodus, a greater freedom from sin and slavery. You might also recognize the, the language of Isaiah 12 too, what we just read, that it's an almost verbatim quote of Exodus 15 too, the song of Moses, the song he sang to celebrate the exodus, the escape from Egypt when the horse 
and the riders of Egypt were thrown into the sea so that they could not hunt down God's people. A time when unique form, repetition of God's covenant name. In your English Bible, it says the Lord God in all, in all caps. In Hebrew, it is Yah Yahweh, the covenant Lord, the one who revealed himself in the burning bush as the God who was self-existent and independent. In other words, the God who would always be all that his people needed him to be. The God who needed no help but promised to be their help, their salvation. And the only question about him is this. Do you know him? Do you sing this song? Do you sing of his salvation? Because God's salvation, it always leads to personal praise. It also leads to deep joy, which is what leads us to our second point. After the Song of salvation, we see the well of salvation, the well of salvation. In verse 3, we sang some great hymns today. We'll sing another one to close our service. And I nearly made a, a lyric from that song, our outline for today. Solid joys, lasting treasures, none but Zion's children know. That's from Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken by John Newton, same author as Amazing Grace. But Think of that middle phrase there, lasting treasures. Isn't that what we see here? We do not have hope in this life only. If we did, Paul says, we would be of all people most to be pitied. We have lasting treasures because we drink from the well of God's salvation. Look with me at verse 3. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. We drink from the wells of God's salvation, and the wells of salvation never dry up. God's salvation, it leads to, to deep joy because it's based on the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Scripture loves to picture God's blessings to us in the form of water especially fresh water for those who are parched and thirsty. You think of Isaiah 55.1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Earlier I said God's salvation. It leads to personal praise and deep joy. Deep joy. Deep like a well. A well that never runs out, never runs dry. Do you remember what Jesus said to the woman at the well? The woman who had five husbands, who had a new man who was not her husband. Did Jesus say, you, you, you're hopeless, you failed time and time again. Why am I talking to you? No. He said to her, in essence, you're trying to quench your spiritual thirst with the wrong kind of of water. Look with me, John chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, the water of the well, the physical well that's staring her right in the face, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Do you know what you're really thirsting for? 
that woman didn't. Not at first, not till Jesus explained it. I've used this illustration before. I can't quite remember when, but fun medical fact for you. Often people overeat late at night. Not because they're undisciplined dieters. Some people do that, but in this case, it's not because of that. And it's not because they're coping with stress. And not even because they're, even, they're actually hungry. It's actually because they're thirsty. They don't drink enough water, so they're dehydrated, they're thirsty, but they mistake the craving for water and think it's a craving for food. They're really craving water, but they just keep eating because they think they're hungry. And in the end, the craving is still there. It's never been satisfied because they don't understand their most basic desires. Could it be that you are craving something, something you need? Could it be you haven't quite realized what you're craving, what you need, that you don't understand your most basic desires? Could that be why you're still searching, still craving, still restless, still thirsting? Or could it be that you've already found what you want, what you need, the thing that satisfies you most, and that you've simply forgotten how good it is, how good He is. Could it be you need to pray, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. See, God's salvation, it leads to personal praise and deep joy. And yes, it's true, the fullness of that joy will not be tasted until that day. But the taste God gives us here on earth is still enough to give us deep joy even the limited understanding that our finite minds have now is still enough, still deep enough, like a well. You know, when Paul spent 11 chapters on the doctrine of God's salvation, you think about that, he spent 11 chapters, Romans 1 through 11. When he got done with all of that, this is what he said, Romans 11, verse 33, Oh, the depth! of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? And then verse 36, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. The words of Derek Thomas, it's as if Paul is saying, I can see the depths, but I cannot see the bottom. Not sure if he borrowed that phrase from someone else, but I know I borrowed it from him. I can see the depths, but I cannot see the bottom. Someone else said it this way, the Bible, which contains the truth about God, the joys of his salvation, the deep joy that we're talking about, it's like a body of water that is shallow enough for a child to wade and not drown. And it's deep enough for an elephant to swim. Shallow enough that even the simple can understand it and be saved. Amen. Praise the Lord for that. But do not miss, do not dismiss the depths of it. If your spiritual life has grown stale, maybe you need to dive deeper. Maybe you need to say like Moses, show me your glory. Show me the depths of it. Or as I said earlier, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. 
God's salvation, it leads to personal praise and deep joy. And lastly, it leads to a tongue that wants to tell. That's our third point. Leads to our third point. After the song of salvation, after the well of salvation, we also see the heralds of salvation in verses 4 through 6. The heralds of salvation, the tongues that want to tell. How do we see this? Look with me at verse 4. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the peoples, proclaim that His name is glorious. Interestingly, the word you, at this point, it shifts to the plural. Many think it's supposed to reflect a communal confession, a communal encouragement to tell others what God has done, making known His deeds among the peoples. And one author points out the emphasis here is on what God has done, not on how we, His people, feel about it. Now, we talked a little bit about feelings earlier. We talked about joy. Joy should be part of your life if you're a Christian, even if you're a little bit quiet by nature. But the reason I'm emphasizing what God has done more than how it makes us feel is because, well, other things in life can make you feel good too. Christianity should give you joy, yes, but that joy doesn't necessarily prove that God is real. One thing, along with the work of the Holy Spirit, that can begin to point to God's reality, Scripture's truthfulness, is the deeds of God done in history. For example, in Isaiah's day, they probably proclaimed the miracle of the Exodus, often when God brought His people out of mighty Egypt and led them into the promised land. If you look back at Joshua chapter 2, Rahab is there coming into the land of Canaan. Rahab tells the Israelite spies, she says, Oh yeah, word's gotten around. We know what your God has done. In our day, we might proclaim the historical fact of Jesus' resurrection. We should. I know as I say that, there are some that are not convinced that's a fact. But you know, there are funny things that happen like journalists who set out to try to disprove the resurrection and end up believing. That was Josh McDowell's story. And he didn't just merely believe, he also wrote a book, became an evangelist. He doesn't try to disprove the resurrection anymore. He tries to convince others that it is true. The works of God will and should produce personal praise and deep joy in us. But here in Isaiah 12, he says the works of God, they are more important than our subjective experience. Now it also says here, when we understand those great historical works which lead to personal praise, lead to deep joy, then also our tongue will want to tell of them. We'll want to tell others. Verse 5, we will want to say, sing praises to the Lord for He has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Again, this is most likely what Israel was meant to say to one another what they were saying to one another. And true enough, there were many who did not do that, many who rebelled. But the remnant who held tight to their God, they couldn't help but tell of it. Verse 6, Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. The inhabitant of Zion, whom he speaks of, it's Zion or Jerusalem, it's a figurative expression for all who dwell in eternal Zion, for all who can say, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
And why can those residents of Zion sing like that? What does the last part of verse 6 say? For great in your midst is the Holy One of Zion. Now that's a bit of a callback, a bit of an illusion. And if you think about it, a bit of a confusing phrase as well, because the Holy One of Israel, it's one of Isaiah's favorite names for God. He uses it approximately 26 times in Isaiah. Why that name? Why does he love that one so much? So much more than any other author. Because in Isaiah 6, he saw the Lord high and lifted up and the angels around him who were crying, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah was terrified, feared for his life because Isaiah and his lips were not holy and neither were his people. Of course, Isaiah did not die. God used the fiery coal to come and touch his lips and cleanse his sin. God removed the impurity and sin that provoked God's holy and righteous anger. And so when Isaiah says, great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel, Isaiah is saying the same thing can be true for you. God can remove your impurity and sin, which also provokes God's holy, righteous anger against you. Isaiah 6, think about how this change occurs here. Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees a holy God and he says, I've got to get out of here, I'm a dead man. In Isaiah 12, he says, one day you will all be singing and the Holy One will be in your midst. And yes, Isaiah 12, it's a picture of what's to come when some of the current war, invasion, all that is a distant memory. But how is that going to happen? How will they go from the holy, unapproachable God to the Holy One being in their midst? How will that become reality? Because Emmanuel, God with us, is going to come. This is all that Isaiah has already told them. And he will conquer sin, Isaiah 9 says. But how? Well, King David's greater son, the branch, is going to come. And by the time we get past this passage to Isaiah 53, we will see a clearer picture of who that is. A clearer picture, not necessarily a pretty picture. Isaiah 53, verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted. Not pretty, but this ugliness is what leads to the deep joy that we see in Isaiah 12, this future day when there will be singing in joy. Because once again, Isaiah 53, verse 5, it says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What are these tongues in Isaiah? Why do these tongues in Isaiah 12 want to tell of God's salvation? Because this is simply what salvation does. 
It causes you to see what salvation means for you and for your Savior. What do I mean? Well, salvation for you, it means joy. It means not getting what you deserve and getting what you don't deserve. But our salvation for Jesus, a suffering servant, the one who conquered sin and death, it means Him getting what we deserve. The penalty of sin, the wrath of God poured out full force, which happened years after Isaiah wrote this upon a cross. Salvation is all about the Holy One of Israel suffering for the deeds of unholy Israel. And not just unholy Israel, but unholy everyone who trusts in Him. All who know they deserve God's anger as sheep who've gone astray. All who are overjoyed at the removal of God's anger. Who begin with personal praise. Who deepen their joy by meditating upon the mysteries of their salvation and who long to tell of God's work, those with a tongue that wants to tell of God's great works. See, a full understanding of God's salvation, it ultimately leads us away from ourselves. It leads us to focus upon the Great One in our midst, the Holy One of Israel. Have you ever seen those wristbands? I don't know how popular they are these days. Wristbands or videos that say, I am second. It's loosely based on John the Baptist's words in John 3, 29 and 30. This joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. I must decrease. I must become less. He must become greater. The heralds of salvation, the tongue that wants to tell. You see, they understand that they are not number one. They are not the story. They're simply the messengers who are happy to be a small part of the story. The story of the Holy One of Israel, who was angry with me and had a right to be, whose anger turned away because of a great deed done by a man named Jesus. The story of the Holy One who longs to dwell in the midst of His people, who promises to come back and bring us home one day, who gives us a song to sing, and a tongue that wants to tell about it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the soaring and majestic words, your words ultimately, given through the personality and the pen of Isaiah, your prophet, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that our minds might grasp the height, the depth, the breadth of the love that you have for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. We pray that our, our hearts might soar as we read these great words of song and poetry and that we might know that deep joy. And knowing it, we might long to make it known to others as well. Father, we, we love you. We thank you for your good word to us. Now be with us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.